All right, everybody, you're in the green room, and we're going to talk about where the future of NFTs are going and what we do with digital fluctuation. Just kidding. All right, <laughs> welcome to the uh, green room. We're going to do some quick introductions. We're going to go in reverse order. Uh, I'm Ray Wong, as you guys know. I got Val Ashtar, awesome co-host, co-founder, and of course, El, our wonderful producer. But let's start with uh, John. We'll go to Cat. We'll go to John. We'll go to uh, Chris and Marty, and then Kathy. Uh, just tell us where you're calling in from and what you're talking about today. John, all yours. Uh, Western Massachusetts. I'm going to try to disrupt your show with some provocative talk on legacy SaaS and uh, and my always controversial ideas about virtual and hybrid events. So, all right, legacy SaaS and uh, you know, modern on premises. All right, cool, man. Uh, let's go to Marty and Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, hey Chris, Chris here. I work uh, very closely with Vala and then Marty. Uh, Marty and I wrote a book together, so uh, we'll hopefully talk a little bit CDP today. CDPs are everywhere, Marty. And I'm Marty Kine. I work with, with Chris, a co-author of the Customer Data Platform book, which is my fourth book. And this is probably the only one that will not be optioned by Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> look up his name and look up Wikipedia and VH1 pop-ups. Okay, Kathy, go ahead. <laughs> All right, so I'm right outside DC coming to you from the nation's capital. Uh, I'm a futurist, so I will be disrupting the show with some futurism. And uh, we're going to be talking metaverse uh, and even holograms. All right. The metaverse is back. Okay. All right. With that, L, all yours. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, we welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray and I and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's Ray Wong, CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. In fact, later this year, his new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which is sure to be another bestseller. Ray's a regular television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm with Vala Ashar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also an author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. If I had the book, I would put it right here. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet, especially the ones after the show. But hey, talking about futurists, we've got an awesome guest ahead of us. Who do we have, Vala, today? We have one of the top futurists in the world, Kathy Hockle, CEO of Futurist at the Futures Intelligence Group. Kathy is leading tech futurists and global recognized business leaders specializing in augmented reality, virtual reality, and spatial computing. Kathy is one of LinkedIn's top technology voices and champion for diversity. Kathy has worked with some of the biggest names in technology, including Amazon Web Services, Magic Leap, and HTC Vive. She leads the Future Intelligence Group, a future research and consulting firm that works with clients in tech, fashion, media, government, and defense implementation of innovation strategies, strategic foresights, and emerging technologies. Kathy is a top Forbes contributor, Big Think, named Kathy one of the top 10 most influential women in tech in 2020, and she's been called the CEO's business guide to the metaverse. Kathy was included in the 2021 prestigious Thinkers 50 Radar list of the 30 management thinkers most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. 
Kathy's the author of a new book titled The Augmented Workforce, How AI, AR, and 5G Will Impact Every Dollar You Make. She's a fantastic follow on Twitter at C-A-T-H-Y H-A-C-K-L, Kathy Hackle. Welcome, Kathy, to the Shrop TV. Thanks, guys. I am so excited to be here. So thrilled. Hey, really excited to have you here. And you know what? I think it's really important for our guests to understand what does a futurist do? Because I think there's a lot of confusion out there and there are different approaches and different methodologies. So start talking about a little bit about your approach and your approach to what futurists uh, do and more importantly, a little bit about what your organization does. Yeah, I think it, you're 100% right. I mean, there's no no one owns the term futurist, right? There's no right way to future. Um, so what I would say in my case, I come with, you know, deep expertise in AR and VR. So I, I'm what I consider a tech futurist. And I would say my day usually starts kind of scanning just like, let's say a day trader would scan like, you know, what the stocks and the shares and futures are doing. I scan what's happening in the world. What's, what are the tech news? What are the social news? What are the political news? And what futurists do is kind of look at those, look at those news, look at the emerging trends. What are the weak signals? What could be potential trends and try to connect the dots, right? And think about second and third order effects. Uh, so it's a lot of that. I mean, every day, and you, you, right? I know you do this too. It's like every day you're consuming insane amounts of information to try to make sense of what's what could potentially happen for you know for your customers and and, and for people out there. Um, we you're trade, right. in, yeah. We don't trade in stocks. We trade in uncertainty, right? You're <laughs> right, and it's the it's the Uber trends that become macro trends that become micro trends, and you create ontologies on top of that and uh, different methodologies. You know, the ones we use are like a pestle methodology, kind of an old school approach, but other people are doing other things. You know, especially as you're moving forward. So no, no, very, very cool. So yeah. So and like, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't predict the future. Nope. Uh, you know, we're getting, I mean, AI is getting better at some of that. <laughs> um, but what I say, it's like, we don't just tell people, you know, go buy the, you know, go do this. We look at like, what could potentially happen? What if a pandemic hit, right? What if? Kathy, <laughs> <What if? laughs> <laughs> we've had ARK invest on the show for several years. They only invest in disruptive emerging technologies. So augmented and virtual AI, autonomous vehicles, this is all part of their ETF portfolio. And uh, they published their annual report mm -hmm. forecasting the space in terms of the virtual world is what they called it, which was a combination of gaming and AR and VR. So. Here's what they said, uh, a report published just a few weeks ago. According to our uh, revenue from virtual worlds, you'll see a compound 17% annual growth rate, roughly 180 billion today to 390 billion in just four years, 2025. They said that um, uh, uh, by 2030, the AR market could scale from under a billion today to $130 billion. So the combination of AR and VR, um, we'll see a 59% compound annual growth rate in the next five years. So it'll be about a $28 billion market by 2025. You've spent the last six plus years working deeply in the AR, VR industry. How close are we to, to, to mainstream? And they made a distinction that uh, VR has still some way to go. It's uh, only achieving maybe 10% of human visual immersion today. But specific to AR, they were very bullish. Uh, your thoughts about how close we are to mainstream? Yeah, so what I would say is definitely, you're starting to definitely see kind of the impact that AR is having on sales, specifically in how conversions and getting people through the funnel. Um, I think Shopify has data that um, any merchant that used AR to visualize those products, um, had the, to visualize the products with the consumer, they had, I think, a 200%, 200x, 
I think it was a, a 200% increase in conversions. So, you know, that's a great number. That's nothing to sneeze at. Um, so definitely seeing kind of those conversions happening with augmented reality. Um, you know, I, I love that you brought up that ARK Invest um, statistic on, you know, projection, let's say on what virtual, the virtual goods economy could be worth. Uh, Cause it's, you know, it's close to 400 billion. And it's interesting because virtual goods could be anything from a sword in Minecraft to a virtual Burberry dress in League of Legends, right? So it's a very broad term. And this data actually was created before the NFT craziness that we're going through right now. Right, right. So it might be a little conservative, you know, who knows? I mean, it's a little frothy and things are gonna correct at some point, right? But, um, but you know, it's still quite interesting. And the way I describe it, I even call this the direct to avatar economy. Um, mm -hmm. The way, you know, when you guys were, were growing up, probably just like my brother, you guys were probably saving to buy Air Jordans, or you know, you knew someone yeah. that was Air Jordans, the right? black, white, and red Air Jordans exactly. in '86, '87, right? <laughs> so you were saving all your allowance to buy them. In in my case, my kids, three kids under ten, whenever they do something that they get paid for or they have a special occasion, they want that money to be turned into Robux, which is a digital currency inside Roblox, so they can buy a skin or they can buy a new face for their avatar or they can buy the latest, you know, whatever it is that they're into at that moment in the game. Um, same thing with Fortnite, a lot of a lot of parents, V-Bucks, I mean, Robux, you're probably spending a lot of money on those. Um, you know, and what are they doing with these? They're, they're buying these virtual goods, this virtual merch, birch, you know, there's all these <laughs> new words popping up. Um, if, I'll give you another really interesting example. I, I did a panel with, uh, Roblox invited me to moderate a panel for them at South By. And, um, you know, with they did a concert with Little Nas X in, in you oh, know, wow. in the game, kind of like there's Travis Scott in Fortnite, there's Little Nas X on Roblox. And they had, I think it was seven figures of virtual merchandise sale. I mean, wow. that's wow. crazy. Like start to think about where this is going with the newer generations, where they're spending their money and what we're selling. Um, so that's a lot of the work I do, Ray, to answer your question, a lot of the work I do currently with my clients you know, I have many, you know, different brands that I work with, the global fashion brands that want to start to understand what is the scalability, what's the revenue opportunity in virtual goods, right? So what what is the opportunity here? How are we going to scale this? How can we get a chunk of that $400 billion, you know, projections? Ray, we're, yeah, getting, no. we're averaging 40,000 views an episode. Kathy, how can we disrupt Disrupt TV? Like, how do we get in this game? <laughs> I know. How I know. do we take we're, advantage we're, of our viewers, Ray? <laughs> yeah, well, start selling NFTs. Apparently, that's the thing, right? <laughs> um, I would say, you know, um, you know, do avatar savers of yourselves that can, uh, you know, can scale faster, right? Deepak is already, Deepak Chopra is already doing it. So, you know, we only have 24 hours, but digital Deepak gets an eternity. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, we talked about competing on time and attention. This is true. I mean, um, but this digital monetization is real. I mean, like in the in the digital world, right? We've got a couple things: ads, search, goods, services, memberships, and subscriptions. And brands are suddenly realizing that they're all media companies, right? A brand on its own doesn't succeed. An event itself is fleeting, uh, but media is everlasting, as you're kind of talking about here. So, when you help people enter the metaverse, right? Like, what what's important for them? Like, what do they have to start thinking about? Uh, um, translating their brand to that digital experience. And yeah. please define metaverse for our audience. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Define the metaverse. Yeah. Sorry. No worries. Let's define. It's a very, it's a very broad term. And once again, just like the term futurist, I don't think anyone owns the term metaverse. I think that that's really important. Um, it was a term coined by uh, Neil Stevenson, a sci-fi writer, 
Um, I actually got to work with him at Magic Leap, so that was a great, you know, oh, <laughs> a nice. great wonderful privilege when we were there. Actually, to you know, have him in the office at, at sometimes because he was based in Seattle. But um, it's really, I mean, it's a sh it's shared virtual worlds. The way I define it is, I kind of defer to Kevin Kelly from Wired, where he says it's when the world becomes machine readable, likable, yep. searchable, clickable. Um, so it could be a full virtual world or worlds, right? It's like something you would access in VR, or it could be our real world with some digital elements there. Uh, so you know, so that that it's even that kind of that idea of of where we meet the machine in some ways. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really broad term. I know it's very hard for people to get their head their heads around, and people tend to think of the Oasis in Ready Player One and Ready Player One. And is that? But it's broader than that. It's, you know, when you start to see the world through through AR glasses and, you know, we all, you know, we're all in tech. We all know that's coming. Like, it's not even debatable. At so, this so for the boomers and boomers and, you know, Gen X folks out there, is this the second coming of Second Life? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It's interesting because some of the companies that are creating these metaverse, um, you know, these metaverses actually use the underlying architecture that Second Life set up. So yep, for, yep. you know, transactions and everything, Philip, I mean, Phil, I, I do, a, I, I, I'm on a lot of panels with Philip Rosdale where we yep. talk about the metaverse, so. Good old you mentioned uh, retail as an example um, mm -hmm. in terms of augmented reality. What are some industries um, beyond retail that uh, leverage uh, augmented and virtual reality to create a more immersive, more engaging experience with their, with their uh, end users? Yeah, I think you're starting to see um, like our, like travel, for example, is starting to use more augmented reality to put you inside portals to show you that destination. I mean, they're doing a lot of things, obviously, in virtual reality. That's a little harder right now because, you know, we can't go to a conference and put tons of VR headsets on people. Um, so that has definitely changed. But the retail <laughs> side has been really successful. It's like a silent disco. It's like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm really... One of the things I'm really looking at is um, the healthcare side. Um, in how to use augmented reality, not just from the surg surgical side of doing the surgery, right? But from the from the medical education and the patient experience. And, you know, one of the things that we did in Magic Leap with a company called Brain Lab was being able to kind of grab those 3D, you know, those 3D scans of brains and being able for the doctor to show the patient what's going on inside their brain, what's the scan showing, and get a better understanding of what could be a potential procedure, right? So, yeah, I mean, the person's still going to be scared, right? It's still a scary procedure to have brain surgery. But if you can use these technologies to help people um, kind of better understand what could happen, it kind of alleviates maybe some of, this, some of the questions they might have. So not just the education of physicians and the training, mm -hmm. but also for the patient education yeah. and patient counseling piece, which most people wouldn't be able to visualize what's inside a brain or what's inside a stent or what you're doing with, you know, a scope. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and which, which line of business uh, or uh, exec sponsors actually bringing you into the company? Are you dealing with chief marketing, chief digital, chief experience, chief revenue or commerce? I know certainly three uh, interactive 3D and augmented reality is, is, is mm -hmm. super hot in the visual commerce space. Uh, uh, for example, companies like 3Kit mm -hmm. uh, working in that space. Who, who's, who's your ally inside of enterprise in terms of bringing this immersive experience into how they engage with their customers? Yeah, chief digital officers are one of the main people I talk to that usually bring me in. They see something I've done or they read about a certain project, they bring me in and kind of 
I work with their teams, uh, chief marketing as well, because I do a lot of, you know, I, I come from a, you know, some a marketing PR background of sorts. So that's definitely one of them. Um, a lot of innovation, like chief innovation officers that are just like, I can't understand. <laughs> what is this metaverse thing? It sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a video game. Um, kind of explain it. But it me, is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of like a broad mix. Um, you know, so yeah, it's definitely C-suite. It has started with some C-suite chief digital kind of bringing me in to kind of help some of their teams. Um, and, and a lot of what we do is educate, like a lot of what I do is educate them about some of these technologies a little bit further than just AR and VR, but look at metaverse, look at volumetric video holograms and how they can be used and, um, and, you know, then help them evangelize within the company, right? If they're going to, you know, I'll give you an example. If it's a global fashion brand that has a yeah. physical product that they sell yeah. and now they're starting to look at what is the, you know, how can we make digital goods a revenue stream? They have to sell a lot of that internally. Yeah. They have to get a lot of buy-in from internal stakeholders. And that is part of the process too. And I'm assuming the pandemic was just a super accelerant for this type of technology, given the fact that the whole world went decentralized digital only for the last year. So it's now become maybe more of a necessity than a luxury given the, given the pandemic. Yeah, I would say so. I'm sorry. That's my pandemic puppy uh, barking. Hey, <laughs> We're all hello, used to pandemic at this um, but yeah, definitely huge acceleration in my in my business. Uh, I, I was actually at Amazon Web Services, um, and I, I had to leave. Uh, I mean, I loved working there. I worked with Sandy Carter, which you guys all know. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Great, great leader. Loved working with her there. But it was getting to be so much inbound on my end that I was like, no, it's a signal. I need to get out and do my own thing. That's awesome. You know, that's very interesting, right? And when we think about AR, I mean, we've been looking at this for quite some time. Um, and we, we're thinking about, you know, the implementation of 5G has taken us quite some time to get done as well, right? And also, if you think about, you know, what's happening with all these new digital surfaces that are popping up, um, I mean, this 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 could be it, right? Because we've been talking about this for almost 10 to 15 years as, as to where this convergent point would be, where the physical worlds and the digital worlds come together. So let's take the concept around holograms. That's another hot area that I I know you're following. Um, what kind of work are you doing there, and how does that tie back to volumetric video? Yeah, and I'm sorry, my dog's still barking. No, I no worries, seriously no apologize. Um, so hold on, let me get him over here. Sure, sure. Let's bring him in. Let's bring, let's, let's, uh, yeah, put him on camera. All right. All right. Um, Come on in. We can calm him down. Let me, let me get him out effect. one second. I am so so yeah, careful. Sure, sorry no about this. Just okay. get him out and him out. Uh, yeah. Okay, hold on. You go get them out. Now, you know, hey, you know, one of the things like Vala, like we've been seeing like, you know, all these digital areas like esports, right? Pick up. We've seen the Roblox, the Epic, you know, the Unity yeah. uh, platforms. It's interesting because media, entertainment, video gaming and reality are slightly coming together. And, and that's, you know, we're going to be in holodeck soon. I mean, it's, this is amazing how far we're going. So, Kathy, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, one of the things I do, I'm actually I'm actually producing a lot of content at uh, Avatar Dimension, which is a volumetric capture studio. So oh yes, yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So Microsoft Microsoft has certified their Microsoft Mixed Reality Capture technology to make holograms, and there's only in the U.S. There's only three studios: one owned by Microsoft, uh, one is MetaStage in L.A., um, and then Avatar yeah. Dimension in D.C. We're the only three studios in the U.S. that can do this type of really volumetric capture holograms, real, yep. like close as you can get to a hologram. 
And it's the we got to get our holograms, Vala. Like yeah. we'll, we'll NFT our holograms, man. So yeah, <laughs> we, we'd love to, if you guys are ever in DC, come on over. We'll get you guys scanned and and get you guys a cool hologram. Um, but what we're seeing there, we we've done. You know, we've worked with our uh, our partners, Dimension in London, Balenciaga uh, for Fashion Week last year. Did a whole yeah. gaming volumetric. Um, they they did fifty holograms of the models and put them inside inside this gaming space called Tomorrowland. Um, we, our team actually worked on that. It was very beautiful world. It's really the biggest volumetric project ever, ever carried on. Um, and yeah, we're starting to see really interesting work around holograms. And I mean, fashion is great, but from, for example, um, from, from a medical standpoint, once again, that's kind of where my mind's going right now, but, um, with PPE, with the protective gear that people had to use, right. one of the things was scanning, uh, scanning, uh, doctors and nurses that knew how to put this on correctly. Um, so that th this could be shown on the web because that's the easiest way. But, you know, when you're putting PPE on, like it has to be done a certain way so it's safe. Um, so if you're able to see that 3D model of the person, it's a video, right? It's performance capture of them putting it on. It's very powerful and allows you to better learn than just seeing a flat YouTube video. Example. Yeah. And those are six by eight by eight meter, like green screens with like reflectors on top and the whole kind of such systems, right? That's what you guys Very have giant, going on. 60 cameras, you know, 360 video yep. is from the camera out. A volumetric yep. video is from cameras in. And cameras in, yep. you know, we're, what we're really good at doing is capturing humans, right? So it's really exciting. I mean, we get into the whole thing about, you know, virtual legacy and <laughs> capturing people for the future, all those sorts of things. Kathy, this is amazing. Hey, your new yeah. book is coming out, Augmented Workforce. When does it come out and how do people get a hold of it before we close out? Yeah, it's coming out in May, uh, May 24th. Uh, it'll be on Amazon. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited. It's I, I wrote it with my co-author, John Bazell, who works at Epic Unreal Engine. Um, oh, so yeah. <laughs> John Bazell. Oh my God, legend. Awesome. We are here with Kathy Eichel, CEO and futurist at the Futurist Intelligence Group. You can follow her on Twitter at C-A-T-H-Y-H-A-C-K-L. We should have you at our healthcare summit. We'll talk more later. Um, thanks a lot for being on the show. So. Thank, you. Thank you, Kathy. Wow, awesome. Uh, great, exciting space to be in and clearly she's having a blast. Well, talking about having a blast, our next two guests just wrote a new book on perhaps the hottest technology in marketing. I'm going to introduce both. Our, our, our next guests are Martin Kind, Senior Vice President of Strategy for Marketing Cloud at Salesforce and author. Martin uh, was previously five years as a leading Gartner analyst covering marketing, advertising, and analytics. He's an author of three memoirs, including House of Lies. <laughs> so some of you may remember Don Cheadle and, and Martin Kind. Uh, he's also co-author of a new book, Customer Data Platforms, which we're going to talk about. You can follow Martin on Twitter at M-A-R-T-Y, Marty Kine, K-I-H-N. And with uh, Martin, we have Chris O'Hara, Vice President of Product Marketing at Salesforce and also co-author uh, of CDP. Uh, Chris uh, is responsible for global product marketing at Salesforce for the data and identity group, covering all things data-driven marketing and customer experience. He's the author of Data Driven and co-author with Marty of the new book, Customer Data Platforms. 
Welcome, Chris and Marty, to the Shark TV. Great to be Thanks here. For having Thanks us, for yeah. You forgot to Thanks mention for Chris's me. other books. He wrote a book about hot toddies. He wrote a book about barbecue wings. He, he's, a, he's a culinary author as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so so, so we, we're going to have to figure out how this book becomes in a movie, right? All your other books have become movies and screenplays, guys. So yeah. but what's the inspiration well, behind Customer Data Platform? And, and why did you guys decide to write the book? Well, I could take that one. The... Um, it's the hottest topic around, actually, in our little world, which is marketing technology and advertising technology. It, it was invented, it was named in 2013 by David Robb, uh, who's still out there running the Customer Data Platform Institute. And, and it really started to shoot up the Gartner hype cycle when I was there, the kind of curve that tech goes through in 2016, 2017. And it reached the peak probably last year, and now it's kind of settling into normalcy. But it really, it, it customer data platform seemingly came out of nowhere. I think Chris and I came to the conclusion that it's it's really part of the evolution of CRM. So it's not really a new category, mm -hmm. but it's something that everyone is trying to figure out. What is it? There's over 100 vendors now in the space. So can, can I be controversial? Is it? Is it? Is, are we just recreating the data warehouse, the data mart, MDM? Like, are we going back to this again? Or why is this different? Yeah, we're yeah. not. No, we're not recreating it. I, <laughs> it's complimentary, <laughs> right? It's uh, more nimble, it's more agile, and it includes only the data that you need to improve customer experience. So it's not all the data in the enterprise. So it's, yeah, that's Chris, the big it's, difference. It's relevance, yeah. relevance. Yes. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, yeah tell, us, tell us why we should care about CDP. I mean, maybe in general, you know, tell, tell us why it is one of the hottest technologies in marketing. Yeah, Marty, Marty has a bunch of great anecdotes in the book, but my favorite one is he looks back at like, uh, looks back about 60 years ago and he talks about uh, a group called the Society of the Divine Savior. And I guess they were a bunch of priests. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they were, they were really trying to solicit uh, donations to their society. And the way they did that is they had this great database of, of donors. And then they licensed like a huge IBM-sized computer, which worked on punch cards. And they had people's address and how much they donated and uh, really almost a propensity score of how much they might be willing to donate. And they would run all these cards through this machine. It was kind of the first primitive idea of, of data management, right? And, and then their endpoint, where they would send uh, this communication, was through the mail. And then they would get the results back and put it back in the computer. But Marty, like, really described what was the first marketing technology stack and really the first CDP. So as, as Marty says, I mean... It's, uh, we think it's like a 40-year-old technology, but I think the ubiquity of um, all this really cool open source software and the speed at which things can, can move today in terms of data, and also the fact that um, you know, the, the cost of collecting and storing data has really been yeah. moving along at a Moore's-like type capacity where it's getting cheaper and cheaper to store you know, terabytes of data now. So now we're in this kind of perfect storm where marketers can do this, and, and some of them don't know why they want to do this, but they're all running after CDP as sort of the answer to this very large and complicated data management uh, problem, which, Ray, I, I know we've talked about multiple times, which uh, some are solving with data warehouses, but you know, it's... Well, the saviors were getting... Painful. Sounds painful. The response rate was 80% to 8-0. So we're like, well, if you wow. do this right, you know, and you have clean data, you could get an 80% response rate. Wow. So that's why <laughs> wow. we're doing it. That's awesome. 
can we talk about uh, you know big mark marketing technology cloud play players? Uh, did, did it take them longer than expected to get into owning their own CDP? What's the what, what, and how is the traction going uh, moving forward? Yeah, the well, the vendor space is complicated. The CDP when it became hot, as often happens, many many tech many companies, either startups or older companies who were in another area who were kind of looking for traction said, oh, I'm, I'm going to enter this CDP for uh, this RFP for CDPs, or I'm going to call myself or rename myself a CDP. So there's been a lot of pivoting and rebranding, which makes things more complicated. I think that the the big clouds did take a while. I don't know about the other ones. At Salesforce, we we took a, a hard look at this category because we actually came in first in a survey. You know, the marketers were asked a couple of years ago, What's your CDP that you're using? We won, We came in first on this survey, but done by a third party, and we didn't even have a CDP at the time. So we're like, "What's going on here? How can Amazing we be winning? We, Amazing we marketing! We were happy about this news, you know." <laughs> but um, the answer, you know, we thought, "Well, do we acquire? Do we build?" And you know, we decided that we needed to build it because it had to be compatible with um, built on the Salesforce core platform. So that's why it took longer. It was kind of a native build product. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, yeah, that too. I think, Vala, um, you know, these marketing clouds, we, we tend to play to our strengths, right? So yeah. Adobe was really strong in analytics. So, you know, when they got into the market, they, they built a technology that was very strong in sort of digital analytics. And of course, Salesforce, uh, when we acquired Exact Target, you know, our yeah. marketing cloud is really built around known journeys and email marketing, and, and we moved into mobile. But we really didn't, um, you know, go big in the digital until we acquired Crux, a DMP. DMP. But now we've moved into uh, marketing analytics with Datarama, and, and of course, we've built our own CDP. What, what I think is interesting about the way uh, we're doing it, and it's not not to, uh, you know, pitch our version of the CDP, but but I think it's interesting. We actually at Salesforce we built our CDP on the Salesforce core technology platform, uh, which is interesting because we built, you know, Sales Cloud on that a really long time ago. Sure. And because we built it on that platform, you know, we were able to build the Service Cloud uh, on the same technology right after. So when we built it, we were like, huh, you know, it would be great if we built the CDP on this because that unlocked things like uh, the interface, the UI. We had a built-in app exchange, so we had thousands of partners in there. We have a learning module called Trailhead. So uh, the broader point is, I think, uh, whether you're Oracle or SAP or Adobe or Salesforce, you kind of want to move to your strengths. So we're seeing a lot of similar but, but different versions of CDPs based on what someone's really good at. You know, Are they main types of CDPs? Oh, definitely. Yeah, there, and that that's part of the part of the confusion in the space is that a lot of, a lot of large enterprises will have multiple products that are called CDPs, and yet they're complementary. They they solve parts of the problem. There definitely are CDPs that that specialize in say identity management, which is part of it. CDPs are all about. Maybe we should have explained this. They're all about taking data, customer data that's sitting in a bunch of different disparate systems, importing it and harmonizing it, and, and mapping the identity so it's available. So you're creating a single view of the customer that's just you know more available for analytics and execution. 
there are uh, CDPs that specialize in the front end, data import, you know, importing streams of data, handling events. There are some CDPs that specialize just on the analytics. There are some that are better at execution. So they have like pipes into, you know, ad, ad tech platforms. And so you could have a CDP that does A, B, and C, put them together, and then you have this enterprise CDP. I think our approach was, you know, we need to provide the end-to-end -end solution to the CMO. So, you know, we have two parts to our CDP, essentially, insights and engagement. You know, it was fascinating. When you take uh, I'm sorry, Ray, but I was going to mention this, this kind of patches into what Marty was talking about. In those two years when, when we were number one in CDP, but we didn't have one, <laughs> what Marty uh, and I did was we actually, we were getting all kinds of RFPs. Companies wanted a CDP. We didn't have one to sell them. So we we're like, let's try to figure out what people want. And we were able to bucket yeah. uh, CDP into really two very broad categories. So in some RFPs, people are like, I want a single source of truth for my customers. Yeah. I want to do segmentation. I want to analyze the data. And that seemed like very similar to data warehouse or CRM or MDM, like a lot of those core data management things. So we called that a system of insight. But then other RFPs are like, I want to do, you know, I'm a bank and I want a real-time event trigger to show someone an offer on an yep. ATP screen. Or I want real-time personalization. Or I want to do real-time, you know, put someone in a propensity bucket based on their last hmm. three behaviors. And that seemed more like around personalization or an RTIM, real-time interaction management. So we call that a system of engagement. And what we did discover, really, in looking at the market, no one's really put those two things together for this uh, enterprise kind of fully comprehensive CDP. And I think, you know, one, that's because we're very early days in the business. But two, it's it's hard to do. Yeah. You know, really hard to do. Yeah. No, and, and when you think about this, right, um, if you have an event-driven architecture in the back end, every event is a trigger. As you start putting analytics, automation, and AI on the back end, you can start building that personalization engine over time, right? Because you need as many of those demand signals in place. But if you don't know who they are, without a CDP, you're kind of challenged in terms of creating those customized journeys and orchestration. Um, for you guys, like, what else can marketers get out of the CDP? Because it's more than just the insights from what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, the well, the Chris mentioned system of insight, system of engagement. By the way, we borrowed those terms from Forrester. Uh, we we kind of adapted them. We don't use them exactly the same, but that's that was the origin uh, those categories. But the system of insight essentially it's a persistent data store. So think of it as a clean, you know, um, very often updated single view of the customer. And the main use case for this, at least the preliminary use case, and David Robb says this himself, CDP Institute, is around analytics and doing two things in particular. It's doing better segmentation. You can, you can, you know, when you have a more complete view of your customer, you can put them in more interesting segments, segments that are, you know, rather than just high value, medium value, low value, as most people do, you can, you know, come up with 20 segments, some of which are non-intuitive. And the other thing is predictive modeling, applying ML or, or AI, but mostly it's ML at this stage, to do something like, you know, um, put a better offer in front of somebody, put a more personalized experience so they're more likely to interact. And by the way, the whole privacy thing comes in here as well. People are much more our data shows anyway, much more likely to provide information to somebody as long as they feel like it's being gathered openly, transparently, but also if the experience itself feels more relevant to them. They're just happier with the experience. Yeah, I had, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, uh, No, please. No, I was going to say, yeah, there's, there's really two ways to think about it, uh, and, and it goes into insights and engagement. So if you think about, okay, 
Uh, I'm a big enterprise. I have all kinds of data. What if I wanted to provision a really interesting analytics view? And we have, we have service cloud. So it's where people call into a call center and some call center reps in front of a screen. And your usual experience is they're kind of filling out your information. What's your name? What's your order number? What's your problem? And um, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if they could have this view of you know, Chris O'Hara Here's the last 10 things he bought in e-commerce. You know, here are the last three conversations he had with the call center. Here's his lifetime value score. Oh, by the way, has 50,000 loyalty points. He's a platinum member. So that's kind of the analytics piece. And, and that could make a conversation with a call center rep be really personal. So, oh, I, I see you're a platinum member. I yeah. see you last bought this thing. I see you have a coupon we sent you from email. Um, yep. But then, yep. of course, that's not enough, right? This this thing has to do something. So what if there is a service where, based on all that information, I just I knew you were platinum, so I sent you to the U.S. call center instead of the overseas call center. Or I could automatically manage the queue to make sure the 100 most wow. important customers got to the top of the list instead of people are just annoying and going to waste hours worth of time with some call center rep. So uh, I think there's two very important aspects to the data. One, what is, how does it make you smarter? And two, what does it do, right? I, I think this, these are great. We had a, a CMO of MasterCard on our show a, a week or so ago, Raja Rajamanan, and he just wrote a book, Quantum Marketing, and he said a number of things that are really disruptive in the marketing space, but one he mentioned is the need to put science into the art and art into the science of marketing. It's more about precision marketing. It was more about personalized marketing. In fact, he talked about the four Ps that we traditionally learn in school about marketing are really no longer core responsibilities of CMO, uh, like pricing, for example. And it's really about personalization, precision. Also, our state of connected research, where we annually look at 10,000 respondents, business leaders, you know, uh, a, a typical consumer engages with a brand, I think, across 10 channels. That was the average, I think, yeah. for our 2020 research and 12 different data sources. So I don't understand how you can demonstrate personalization and relevance without CVP. As a former CMO, I just don't I don't I don't see how you can do that. <laughs> Not just enterprise, even mid-sized companies or any size company that has more than a dozen customers. So so. So what is our unique point of view from Salesforce when we position CDP, when we engage with chief digital or marketing or revenue officers in, in telling them the importance of personalization, speed and, and, and precision? Well, I think it, you know, it, you, you know Chris was um, alluding to this, but it, part of it is really just it's plumbing. It's, it's not very sexy. It's back office work that needs to be done as, as, a, as a foundation to do any good personalization. And it's just coherence. I mean, Chris talks about his experience with an airline frequently, and it's true, they invested, Delta Airlines invested a lot in the cross-channel experience. And so if I do something on the kiosk, it's reflected in the app, it's immediately. If I do something in the app, it's reflected on the website. That's hard to do. These are just different systems, but it's all pulling off the same sort of view of the customer. And as Chris said, you know, somebody calls the call center and I've done something on the website, the consumer will notice if that call center rep doesn't know that 
And just to create this kind of real-time, you know, single view of the customer adds value right away. And then secondly, you can go into, you know, analytics, segmentation, predictive modeling, and do kind of fancy, uh, whatever, holograms, <laughs> ETFs. <laughs> but <laughs> the it also works. It's funny. You can't get to the multiverse without CDP. That's right. What is interesting, I was, I was flying an airline uh, yes, yesterday, and uh, they, they totally failed at that, right? And I won't mention whom. People do know who I fly. And <laughs> the challenge was, you know, they, there's just the systems are all over the place. You're completely right. Silos. I mean, the Silos. basic infrastructure and the plumbing of actually trying to put together my Twitter handle with my flight, with my confirmation number, with the fact I'm standing at SFO at that gate. I mean, that should have been done. And I mean, you're an admiral. Done. You're a 500,000 mile a year client. I mean, if they're not doing it for you, uh, yeah, it's it's. Yeah. I'm not I'm sorry, Chris. The point, but the point being is like that's what it is. But Chris, go ahead. You were saying something too. Yeah, sorry. I was gonna say that's funny. Uh, I was on a uh, well, one of the last trips I was ever on actually last year. We went on vacation, and we were about to miss uh, a connection in Atlanta through Delta to go on a vacation down in St. Thomas. And I tweeted, "We're not going to make our connection," and it was about to have my whole vacation ruined. And Delta picked that up. They they hit me with an SMS message on my phone, wow. sent a car to zip me from, you know, gate A to gate T or whatever it is in Atlanta. It's miles away, right? And I was like, oh, yeah. wow, that's amazing. And that one experience, which involved connecting two very disparate systems, social media and, you know, SMS or whatever, uh, I never want to fly another airline again. But the other thing is what Marty and you just talked about had zero to do with marketing. So I think if we think about right. what Salesforce <laughs> is thinking is, um, you know, we've built this CDP. Yes, it's for marketers. Of course, we're going to take care, you know, take advantage of the, the froth and excitement in marketing. But the platform upon which we built this, this marketing application is a data platform. And, and that's relevant to personalizing sales and service and commerce. And if you think about this new chief digital officer, you know, they own experience in a store, experience on the phone, experience in a call center, plus, of course, you know, advertising and marketing. So I think the stakes are a little bigger and uh, it'll be interesting to watch. No, this is true. We're in the middle of this massive uh, digital transformation. We're in the post stage. Digital business models meet digital monetization, meet digital channels. You can't do it. It's a battle for data supremacy. You guys are in the middle of this. Um, how do we get a hold of your book? Um, who's publishing? Wiley, I think. Wiley. It's available at fine bookstores everywhere as, as well as on Amazon. So, and it's well, called customer here. data platforms. Can't miss customer it. data platforms. You can't miss it. Uh, we got a copy of the book right here. We'll pop it on. And more importantly here, we're with Chris O'Hara, Vice President of Product Marketing at Salesforce and author and check out his cookbooks and Marty Kimes, SVP Strategy Marketing Cloud at Salesforce. Also best-selling author in many regards. You follow Chris at Chris O'Hara on Twitter and Martin at Marty Kine, M-A-R-T-Y-K-I-H-N. Thank you so much for being on Disrupt Thank TV. You both. Thank Thanks, you. Uh, thanks, Ray. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. We have yeah. been educated <laughs> on CDPs. So. And, and I think Chris's point that it's, this is not a marketing capability. Any line of business owner wants single source of truth uh, for an individual across the channel or all the touch points into the business. So I think it's, it's more than just marketing. But the hype definitely is in marketing. Speaking of hype, Speaking of <laughs> our uh, first ballot disruptive Hall of Fame uh, return guest, our final guest for episode 231, John Reed. 
He's a co-founder of Diginomica. He's an enterprise irregular who blogs and video casts on enterprise trends. John advises clients on enterprise go-to-market and B2B content strategy. Co-founded by John and four other uh, longtime enterprise bloggers and analysts, Diginomica is focused on providing original commentary focused solely on transformation of the enterprise without uh, the consumer tech fluffery. I love that, fluffery. <laughs> John has a long-running podcast series, Busting the Omnichannel, featuring informal low BS talks and events reviews with independent experts. You can follow John on Twitter at John ERP, John, J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back, John, to Disrupt TV. And now for something completely different. <laughs> okay so you, you you were talking about this in the back channel we're talking about legacy SaaS. okay what is legacy yeah. SaaS? all right so you guys can help me today because this is a concept that's under development so it's not a done thing yet um it, it's in the oven if you will um and and I, i'm not going to turn this into like a book or a keynote and, and I'm not going to bash a bunch of vendors. I mean, I think one thing we should really res respect is a lot of SaaS vendors made the difference for a lot of companies uh, in, in the course of the pandemic. And, and we don't want to ever lose track of that fact. Uh, but having said that, uh, I think it's important to you to think about this as a term. It actually came up a couple of years ago. I'll tell you how it originated. But the idea is basically that that we've been giving SaaS vendors a bit of a pass for a long time. And there's some reasons for that. The user experience was so much better. OPEX was a lot easier for budgeting. Implementations were faster. The consulting ratio versus software wasn't insane like on-premise uh, <laughs> typically is. Sorry, on-premise vendors. Uh, absorbing new functionality every quarter or six months was so much better. Integration seemed to be easier. I could go on. Workflow automation was generally better. Hey, they tended to audit your software less. That was pretty cool. Um, that was cool. Audits, <laughs> audit, audit pretty much sucks. Or they're audited. audit every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And we wanted vendors um, to provide like real economies of scale versus the hosted solutions in your uncle's closet that were posing as cloud, right? That turned out to be problematic and expensive data silos. So that all sounds pretty good, right? So yay, yay, SaaS, right? Um, but as I've been kind of deconstructing in my Hits and Misses video show, which looks really, it's nothing like Disrupt TV. It's not your competition, so don't worry. <laughs> it's it's a jugular deconstruction of enterprise projects, basically. And, and, and basically, one day, customers woke up and realized that they were still locked in and that SaaS software was a lot harder to integrate than vendors let on. And it wasn't all that cheap in the final accounting either. Now, look, lock-in isn't always bad, right? I mean, because... Marriage is a form of lock-in, I've said sometimes. And marriage can be pretty damn good, right? Um, but there's also such a thing as a bad marriage, and no one wants that. Um, and, and the overriding lesson I want to sort of get to with this concept of legacy SaaS is that cloud is not just an economy of scale architecture and a better user experience. It should be a better way of doing business. It's a customer-focused business transformation for the software industry itself. And that's what's not finished yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're talking about incorporating the best practices, the processes, the engagement patterns in there. You're thinking about using that as signal capture so that it informs better decisions, right? Because it's like a collective brain that's out there. I, I think you're heading in that direction, right? Exactly. And I have a countdown for you of legacy SaaS characteristics that I'm developing, which you guys may be able to contribute to. 
So uh, on my videos, I like to do a little countdown. So I'm going to do one for you today if you'd like. Uh, it's four characteristics. And by the way, this this all started a couple years ago at, at the Freshworks Analyst event where I kind of threw this idea out there. So props to Alan Berkson for bringing us out to Vegas. Remember when we used to go to Vegas and have fun, guys? Yeah, I, I heard really. about that. What is <laughs> yeah. this thing called Las Vegas? There's a tunnel they're building there. Yeah, yeah it's something like that, right? All right. So let me, let me just run through these four characteristics. You guys can... Can can add on if you if uh, if I missed any. So I started. All right, with drum roll. Yeah, so I started with legacy task. That's like a skull and crossbones. So that's kind of <laughs> like scary. Um, customer success is not expanding your product footprint. So I think there's been this misunderstanding sometimes around customer success that it's been kind of in reality more of an excuse to kind of upsell, upsell, upsell. Uh, I actually stole that one from Josh Green. I'm sorry, Josh. Um, it's really about taking the collective data you're receiving from customers and aggregate aggregating that in a way that's private and they opted into it. And Ray, this is what you were talking about a minute ago, and, and returning it back to customers in the form of intelligent actions that are that are really drilled into their industry. And it's about helping customers achieve those advanced benefits, many of which aren't available at Go Live. And and there are some SaaS vendors that are moving in this direction, but there hasn't been enough progress here, as I would like to like to see. Um, and I'm not going to name vendor examples of ones that are moving today because unfortunately, a number of them are Diginomica partners. And I don't want this to look like a commercial exercise for, for our partners. Um, but um, the other thing I want to say about customer success is that every interaction with your vendor factors in. If your support sucks, bad satisfaction scores, how can you talk yep. about being a CX SaaS solution? CX vendors that inflict pain during contract negotiations. That's not true CX either. So anyway, I'll get back to that a little more in a sec, but that's oh, wait, but hey, you know, that's the first one. All right, cool. What's the second one? Second one. We have that vertical. Stop saying that. Wait, no, hold that, hold that up. Hold that up. We'll, we'll pop that. We have that vertical. Stop it. Stop, stop using the vertical thing casually. It's really tough to build a vertical. A vertical is a community of experts, advisors, industry leaders, deep software configuration around that industry. Don't use the term lightly. Everyone wants to say, oh, we've got industry cloud and this or that. Like, let's make sure you really have that. Okay, let's go on to the next. You're going to love our APIs. You're hey, going to love our APIs. What's wrong with APIs? <laughs> Nothing. But Brian Summer, my occasional video partner in crime, calls us APIs that go nowhere. You, you have to assume responsibility for your most important integrations with other software products, even your competitors. I've only seen one vendor show off an integration with a competitor on stage. Why doesn't that happen more often? Customers want choice. Show how the choice works. Assume responsibility for it. Don't pretend that your APIs are going to solve all those problems. One more. Streamline contracts and simplified pricing. And that goes back to the point. CX mm. is everything. Okay. So uh, Gartner's Hank Barnes has done a bunch of research on this, how customers are now judging vendors by all their interactions with that vendor. And that's really, really important because we think about the modern buyers being very informed and doing a lot of autonomous research. And that's true. But when they interact with you, they're going to judge you based on that interaction. And, and, and when it comes to pricing, where are the consumption-based pricing models? Where are the easy user license transfers for casual users? What about all-you-can-eat pricing? There are vendors out there that are doing this, but in the large enterprise market, not so much. So there's way too much individual user licensing, very cumbersome. Uh, Consumption-based pricing is common in yep. hyperscaler workloads, very uncommon in enterprise software. Why? So that's just a little take development. It's still under development, but it's just I wanted to debut it with you guys. Breaking you live. Guys, 
because you guys are <laughs> the groundbreaking folks where these kind of conversations happen. So no, no. There we breaking go. live. And you know what? It reminds me of this blog that Esteban Kolsky, one of our friends, wrote five years ago. And he said, if your provider vendor offers anything than other three independent layers in the cloud uh, that can even be replaced, interconnected, and some cloud computing components, uh, but you most likely have legacy SaaS or hosted. But check it out. It's called Thinking yeah. Cloud, thinking about these roadblocks. He's got something there to add to, to what you've got as well. So you might want to touch base oh. with him. Esteban is perpetually out in front. So yeah, they're, these are all uh, um, very strong characteristics that I would I would want to see uh, if I was a buyer, a, a practitioner, which I was before I joined Salesforce, but my mo most of my career in terms of a, a partner. Uh, uh, so it makes a lot of sense. I also think that what the last 13, 14 months accelerated was the requirement for you SaaS company to demonstrate. Uh, uh, speed to value. Uh, are you able to create value at the speed of need, my need, the customer? Um, and so I think speed uh, is is an important currency, which became really uh, very prominent. You know, people, um, uh, you know, are surprised when I said my company of 50,000 somewhat employees, we were able to transition to work from home literally over weekend because we we, because we design for movement. In order to achieve optimal speed, you have to design for movement. And so part of adopting a cloud first or SaaS model versus maybe highly customized on-premise is that you're designed for movement. You're designed for optimal speed. And so ability to create value at the speed of need, I think is something that SaaS companies or any company for that matter needs to demonstrate quickly if you want to compete and stay relevant in this in this new economy value so at the speed of need that's the quote of the day man <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and you don't get to define what that speed is no it's your customer it's customer so, speed you know you can have all the internal metrics uh and hopefully that jives with your competition so it's relative to your competitors are you able to deliver value uh when your customer partner community ecosystem needs it um and that that requires um you know, design for simplicity, design for continuous innovation. There's so much that goes into that, but that's a whole other. Well, and the, the, other, and the one uh, other thing I just want to point out, which you're totally right about that, Vala, but the one, the other thing I want to point out is that again and again in these use cases, and I don't know, Ray, if you see the same with Constellation, but a lot of the deepest benefits that customers achieve actually don't happen at Go Live. Um, no. Go Live, Go Live yeah. is great for getting people on the software, and obviously in a pandemic, that's the emergency, and you got to get people going. Great. Right. But but you have to dig deeper because you know your past uh, guest talking about the customer data platform, it's it's not putting in that platform. It's figuring out how to make better decisions out of that platform, and and right. so it's an ongoing thing. And these partnerships get tested based on that. Because did you just put in software, or are you really digging deep with that customer to help them get their users to really understand how to make better decisions with the with the better data that they're getting? And, and that is the really meat of the discussion that needs to happen now. And and so legacy SaaS is kind of a way of just kind of warning people that, that yes, it's been a nice advancement, but there's so much more that we need to do. Yeah. You and, know, and I, I think, think this is going to be a... Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I think oh, ahead, Bob, go ahead, the culture of the company. Um, uh, I'm reminded of a story really quick. In 1998, the British rowing team would come in last in most of the races. And Sydney Olympics was in 2000. So the captain decided they needed to change their life habits in order to not embarrass UK at the Sydney Olympics. <laughs> so he came up with one question. 
that would guide the daily behavior of the eight crewmen on the on the rowing team. And the question was, will it make the boat go faster? Mm-hmm. So whether you skip your diet, exercise, sleep pattern, every day these eight men would simply ask themselves, is this thing I'm going to do, will it make the boat go faster? So ultimately, investing in technology like CDP or investing on modernizing legacy um, and not defining customer success based on your footprint, the question should be, does this improve the relationship with my stakeholders? If you have a guiding principle that every act, whether it's bringing a new product, new feature, go to market, whatever you do, if you simply ask yourself, will, will this improve the relationship with my customer, employee, partner, community, environment, you have to have as a company a North Star, and it really speaks to your leadership and culture. I think to get to those characteristics you mentioned, it's not a technology play, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's 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 your it's what you believe, what you say, and what you do, the authentic intersection of your thoughts, words, and actions. So it's more of a cultural transformation, process, talent acquisition, and lastly, technology. So I'm not yeah. sure if it's a tech thing. Nope. To me, it's a much bigger, multi-dimensional. No, you're, you're talking about a philosophy, a, a code of work. A you know, yeah, to get there. But hey, switching it's topics, mindset. events, yeah. right? Are, it's on the ground events. I mean, this is another hot topic for you, John. Is that coming back? What's going on there? <laughs> well, uh, oh my goodness. Well, it, it's a little too early to say exactly what's going to happen for for the fall. I think I think we'll know a lot more in in August. But the short answer to your question, right, is yes. Um, they are coming back, but probably, uh, probably I would guess that Vegas and Orlando won't be the hot spots on people's calendars as much as more uh, regionalized uh, events that are a little easier to to manage and get to and stuff. But but that's not really the point. That's more like crystal ball crap. That uh, who who knows? We we have we need a few more months, I think, before we can really know. Um, but but this gets to my huge disappointment that I have around events and, and other technologies as well this year. Um, but I just don't feel we've really pushed the envelope nearly enough on what virtu- virtual can really do. People constantly tell me how virtual virtual can't do this and virtual can't do that and all this kind of stuff. And 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 I, I'm here to tell you I've had a lot of transformative experiences on virtual platforms this year, but almost none of them were on the major shows that we think about. They were all like kind of more back-channel stuff and more creative stuff. Um, it can happen. And the reason this is important is because the future of events is largely going to be hybrid. And so it's time to really figure out what's possible virtually so you can incorporate that into a hybrid event because hybrid does not mean streaming your keynotes. Hybrid means, again, back to the customer success concept, how do you bring in people from around the world who can't get to your event because international travel to events is not going to happen right away. So how do you pull those people in? How do you engage them? How do you make them feel like they're a part of things even if they can't make it? Now, Ray, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this because you have an event coming up this fall. And I'm sure you're going to be thinking about this. We do. Um, we're working with a couple technology vendors to test out some uh, unique opportunities where someone can be placed into a digital sphere at any point in time, anywhere in the world, into the conversation. Our challenge is really figuring out how that surface looks like so that they can be participating. So it's two-way video interaction at any point in command is kind of who we're working with. So I have to be very careful. So we're testing those out, but but that's one way to do it, right? If I sign an NDA right now, will you tell me? Uh, uh, yeah, but, uh, I'll tell you afterwards. But, <laughs> so. Yeah, and I did want to mention some of the stuff that Kathy's doing. I think could could 
Although the I, Tomorrowland I, I, was awesome for the fashion yeah. stuff. I mean, that was a and, wild show. So it's it's amazing. And and look, I mean, I'm not like Vala was saying. A lot of these problems aren't technical, but some of the VR stuff is going to transform how we meet virtually in a way that does feel more realistic. For example, and that's pretty cool. Um, but I think the biggest thing I wanted to get across is that instead of trying to predict what people are going to do, like like in retail, for example, instead of trying to figure out how many people are going to go back to the store and when are they going to go back, it's cl clearly the winners are the ones that are going to be hybrid and fluid enough that they can adapt based on what happens. Some people are going to come back. Some people aren't. I can serve all of them. I, 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 you can pick up at the store. You can, you, you cannot, you, you can change your mind. Um, and, and the same thing with events. Oh, I booked for Ray's event. Oh, I'm having second thoughts for whatever reason. I'm going to do a hybrid. Like th the more you can accommodate that yeah. shifting preference, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, that's the new type of inclusiveness. And actually, you'll see some interesting things in retail. For example, there's a startup called Ghost Retail. What they allow people to do is there's a lot of influencers selling things. They allow the influencers to go into the studios and break out and push to their audiences as well. And basically, every brand has become that media property on their own, and they're activating their users to create movements around those media properties. So you're definitely right. seeing stuff like that in place. But hey, let's hit one more issue before you go. Okay. Workplace data privacy meets vaccine economy. How's that going to turn out? You've been talking what about this topic. Stuff. <laughs> Small topic. You've got uh, thirty seconds yeah. or less, and we got to yeah. cut the commercial break. Let, let me put a ribbon on that. I mean, I mean, look. I mean, we we don't know a lot of this because some of this may take place on a policy level where employers have less control. Um, but what we do know is that. Uh, employee experience matters for most companies. It's a competitive issue that's becoming more and more important. That means whatever you do is going to have to be very transparent and there's going to be ha have to be a lot of opting in. And, and this, there's a lot of culture change around here, but hopefully it's the opportunity to really create better experiences for employees. And, and but, but health is going to be right in the middle of this and it, it is going to push push companies hard. It's going to push software vendors hard to have these capabilities in the software. Um, I, I, I don't have any perfect answers for you guys as to how all that's going to play out. But uh, but one thing I do know is that it matters. I mean, obviously, you look at like a company like Amazon. I, I, I seriously question a lot of what how they treat their employees, especially their their logistics and delivery drivers, nightmarish like volume KPI scenarios. It's like they can't wait to get to automated delivery and drones as soon as possible. But for the most part, if you're not a big and vulnerable giant like them, you better take this stuff really seriously. And, and I, I happen to hope that they actually get their comeuppance as well, because I think that there's other vendors doing things better that they can show that you can treat your employees with respect and dignity and pay them a fair wage. And, and, and give them better experiences to deliver to customers without scrambling all over the place with their heads cut off, peeing in bottles. There's a better way to go than that. And, and I think other companies are going to come in and let's, and let's do this in a transparent way and not wait for regulations, but figure out how to make things safe. Because if it's safe and happy for your employees, it's good for your customers. This isn't hard. It's not hard. We're here with the one and only John Reed. So co-founder of Diginomica, pundit on his own. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Amazing, John. So, yeah. hey, John, thanks sorry, for being sorry. on the show. And Always you can follow him on Twitter at J O N E R P. And more importantly, I'm looking forward to the day we, you and I can break bread again. So, no doubt. person. Me too. You too, Bob. All right. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, John. The last time John and I were in person with you, Ray, we were. We were in New York. Weren't we getting steaks? New York front <laughs> stage where this like famous spinner. Who had just spun for like Madonna or Gwen Stefani? Like this, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but like this world famous spinner, 
and us three are in front stage, and we decided, you know what, we'd rather go eat steak. <laughs> so, it was for NRF in New York. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh, uh, I think so. Uh, wow, that was amazing. But, um, yeah, we got to get John back. I wanted to talk to him about like disruption in the media space. He's a founder of a media company, and certainly we had John Furrier last week talking about disruption in media. And uh, so there's so much we, we always learn so much with John. He always brings, as I say, his A plus game. Um, Next week, we have uh, three you know, senior executive founders of yes. exceptional companies. You really want to tune in. Uh, our first um, guest is Michael Saylor, chairman of MicroStrategy. If you guys don't know, MicroStrategy has 91,000 Bitcoins. It's about a $6 billion uh, balance sheet on Bitcoin. Michael on Twitter convinced Elon Musk to buy uh, cryptocurrency and uh, 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 and Tesla now has forty eight thousand bitcoins, so you know a couple of billion dollar investment. And I actually have that live interaction between Michael and Elon talking about uh, transitioning balance sheet to crypto. So so we got a, some just an amazing CEO uh, chair, chairman of MicroStrategy. We have Sunil Atani, co-founder CEO of Horizon Three AI, and they do red team as Brilliant a service. Work. So important, but go ahead, yeah. With, with understanding threat vectors when AI is involved is a whole degree of complexity and scale that businesses need to understand. And Cecilia Flores is founder and COO of Weeby. So again, three founders, senior executives. Um, next week's going to be an amazing show, just like this week's. <laughs> Ray, your closing remarks on multiverse, precision marketing with CDPs, and understanding how to uh, make sure the marriage experience is better than the courtship experience. And if you're a SaaS company that doesn't understand that, you're not going to be in business. You're not going to be in business for so long. Your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, all these things come together, right? This uh, post digital world is emerging. Uh, we're seeing how companies are reacting and behaving. Uh, and, you know, those news experiences are going to play a big role. Um, the metrics for every company is going to be ARPU, CACs, right? Average revenue per user, customer acquisition cost, and, you know, retention rates. It doesn't matter what you're in uh, as we get the digital monetization models. Uh, and, and more importantly, you know, if you're a legacy SaaS vendor and you're not actually living, up to the hype, you're going to fail. So, but hey, everybody, thanks for being here. Uh, we're on Disrupt TV. Episode number 231 has concluded. Catch us every Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern for Disrupt TV on most Fridays. So, thanks for watching. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.